really is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora podcast network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture. Hosted by Brock Rodderman and Peter Sleeman. Today we're going to be discussing some open-ended ideas about what's going on in the world at the moment with reference to uh, the later season of Game of Thrones, so spoilers ahead. But firstly, I think that it's probably been a while since our fans have heard our voices. So, uh, from me, Peter... I'm Peter, because I don't know if you remember what my voice sounds like. Um, I'd like to say <laughs> sorry for the huge delay. Um, life got in the way. I have been uh, crazy at work, and uh, I, Brock and I have been co-authoring a paper, which we recently presented at a conference, or I did, um, on our behalf. Um, so yeah, it's been a super busy time, but uh, we're going to try and get into this a bit more and uh, you know start a regular podcasting schedule again yeah i don't think uh six months constitutes a delay it's more like uh, a leave of absence for freaking ever so uh, i think in the in the entertainment industry they call that a hiatus <laughs> a hiatus is fitting um yeah we did some stuff in the background but uh you know work took precedence and we neglected the podcast unfortunately don't want to do that again we apologize profusely. Let's get into this one, which I think is going to be a bit all over the place. But I uh, desperately want to talk about Game of Thrones Season 7. And I just also want to see how that uh, correlates with some of the stuff we're seeing out of North Korea. You know, we've got some, some dragons and ice zombies up there. Oh yeah, and then uh, there was the terrible Season 7 as well of Walking Dead. Um, which I'll... Oh, I haven't seen that at all. No, don't. I'll fill you in. It's crap. And that's it. We're done talking about it. No, and actually, let me just start there because the there's a narrative, well, not a narrative, but there's some like historical progression that's been developing in, game, in Walking Dead. Because I noticed how we've got like this uh, threat to civilization, claiming to be civilization, coming from the Negan camp, which is uh, kind of extracting resources by uh, with the coercive monopoly of violence that it employs over other camps to you know extract food and medicine whatever they need uh, they take half of everything and then they, and the people are willing to hand it over simply because they know everyone will die if they don't or they'll find some manipulative exploitative way to kill people until the leaders of their camp eventually give in and hand over the goods so it's kind of like a you know a middle ages feudal system but more based on the tyrannical hierarchy of power as opposed to um, some divine noble leadership that rules over one kingdom. This has kind of been coming for a while because, well, I thought it had been, because we've been watching a series of, of small group of characters trying to survive, well, The Walking Dead, hence the namesake. But it was inevitable that they meet up with other groups of survivors who had developed sustainable ways of living, and a certain set of rules which they live by. And if you wanted to, if the group of Rick and et al. wanted to join, they would have to buy into those rules and live by that system. And so when they found places like Woodbury, um, you know, they conflicted with leadership, they left, found that prison, 
Um, in fact, even going back to season two, when they found the farm where, where Maggie lived, um, you know, they had to live by the, the doctor's rules. And uh, and then we, we progressed fast forward all the way through to, I think it's season five, when they discovered Alexandria. Um, and so they try, you know, they overthrow the leader there and take over Alexandria. But all the time they're, com- they're coming into contact with buying in or um, conflicting with a certain set of rules and norms that they have to live by. And so when we think that, it, I think it's in season six, that from Alexandria they established trading connections with a nearby town called Hilltop. And that was quite interesting because we brought in, we saw some trade theory, we saw some um, intention to perform, you know, basic diplomatic relations and um, essentially a, a body or core of actions that constitute what we would call international relations. So they find ways to deal with each other by exerting certain forms of power to get to satisfy their interests. For the purposes of the show, obviously, they you know they make the, these bodies of people the kind of people who would never threaten uh, death or you know mass violence to get what they want, and that's what makes them peaceful and the good guys. But of course, when you get um, the camp like the Negan camp, um, which is obviously led by this guy who's called Negan, but through some ideological force, he's convinced everybody who follows him that they're a group of Negan, so no one can be really identified individually. Nevertheless, this uh, this camp uses has hit a critical mass of weapons and firepower uh, and just, well, bloodlust that allows them to effectively have no moral qualms with killing people to get what they want. And so this forms a coercive monopoly of power because they seem to have crossed the moral line that other camps um, are not willing to cross. And so you have Hilltop and a a new place called the Kingdom um, all falling under this realm of power by by the Negan camp, which also, by the way, call themselves the saviors, but that's more civilizational term. So they see themselves... This is the interesting part... Negan, the leadership of Negan and uh, his followers, the saviors, they see themselves as the bringers of civilization. And this is more what I want to talk about, is this sort of progression from a small group of characters up to larger um, bodies of uh, groups of people um, in, in organized camps and certain norms and rules, all the way up to a large civilizational force, which claims its civilization or claims it's providing civilization because... It holds the moral power on across all areas. So it has the power to extract resources, to provide resources, to make rules, to break rules, to uphold rules, um, and so effectively manages all aspects of life. And as, I wanted to, wanted to get your perspective on this historical sort of development because we normally see this in the rise of an empire. You'd have certain, you know, you, back in um, in ancient times, you would see. Uh, cities develop, you'd see city-states develop, and they would even form as wide as kingdoms. But then when it gets to a point where they start conquering other city-states and kingdoms, you know, the, the geographical span of of that, can we call it the nation-state or kingdom, becomes an empire. And, you know, the, the ruler becomes an emperor, and they uh, they find a way to convert the people that they conquer into followers of their own. And so I'm wondering, where do you think that would lead to next, or what do you think would be the downfall or the survival of this Negan, of this Negan camp? Um, it, oh, by the way, if you haven't watched it yet, some, just uh, switch off quickly, because there's some spoilers I have for you. So by the end of the season, um, 
the obviously you know Rick and the good guys it's inevitable they decide they despite the hardships they've suffered and despite the power they see Negan having they're going to form an alliance with other camps and they're going to fight back yeah. it's um it's a difficult decision to make obviously for leadership because they have to make certain sacrifices they have to compromise certain moral precedents that they've set but um you know for the for the greater survival of the camp which is probably the highest moral precedent they have to fight back and well it ends in a bit of a stalemate because nobody really sees things going the way that they end up going but if it, it sets up a, a you know a large sort of uh, battle exchange that's coming in season eight and um just never never mind the the story since you haven't seen season seven but how do you what, what are your opinions on empires and uh, imperial downfall well i mean like it's interesting um in consideration of and i just want to do this blank statement right now. For anybody who hasn't seen season seven of Game of Thrones, this is going to have spoilers in it. But if you haven't seen it, then I don't know what's happening in your life. Um, obviously, something more important, probably. Um, and um, but yeah, it's maybe a- like a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like so. I've kind of switched off, and it's sad. I like. I, I feel like a part of my soul has died a little bit because I've kind of switched off the zombie apocalypse uh, story. Especially as it takes place in, like, the modern world. Um, Unless you're talking about a fun show. Well, that's the other thing about Walking Dead, is that it's not fun. Like, I don't have fun watching it anymore. I'm just like, everybody's so depressed all the time. It's like, fuck my life. Um, (laughs) But if you go and watch a show like uh, World War Z, which is basically Walking Dead, but with just all the fun injected into it. You know, it's like... Uh, what's a cool zombie? Let's see a radioactive zombie and the zombies glowing. Oh, what would happen if a bunch of zombies got into a pharmaceutical company? Oh, look, zombies got into the Viagra and they all have huge dicks. Like, <laughs> it's a, it doesn't take itself too seriously because that's once you once a zombie movie or show, um, and we said this in our first ever episode that there's a reason that most zombie shows take place post swarm, you know, post the decline of civilization because. I think one of the consensuses, consensi, um, consensuses of political science now, <laughs> and obviously there are other social scientists that would disagree, so I'm talking about political science here, and there are political scientists who would disagree, is that political, pol- politics is progressive. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a normative building process. So the first time that human beings came into contact with each other, we started building political norms. How do we govern the world in which we live and it was it's it's a pretty horrible process you know there's a lot of trial and error so you know i that that's why i agree with fukuyama and fukuyama uses mad max as his uh example in the end of history in the last man is that you know in the mad max world it's never explained to us what the apocalypse is but um he he thinks that it's highly unlikely that civilization would uh, would just crumble to such an extent that we end, we go back to this barbaric, you know, that's not even a feudal system. That's that's like Europe uh, during you know the Roman the the initial Roman expansion when you just had Germanic tribes roaming around and killing each other. Um, yeah. You know that's where a lot of these like po- apocalyptic shows take us to is is that barbaric place, and that's unlikely. And the reason he says that's unlikely is because we've built up this like library of norms and values that. Um, and those norms and values don't just uh, carry with them, you know, uh, behavioral themes. This is how you should behave. But they also transmit history through, you know, they transmit our 
knowledge of politics to the next generation. So, for instance, yeah. the generation that we have today in the liberal, gen the, you know, our liberal society in many countries and, um, you know, liberal democracy, our norms promote, uh, you know, the rights, you know, the rights of the individual, human rights. We promote free and open trade. We, we promote freedom as much as possible. And that's not be I don't think that that has anything to do with morality, to, so to speak. I think that that has to do with the fact that through our history, we have found that that is the most efficient way to run a, a, a polity. Um, so, like, comparing... It's polity, but... Polite. Yeah, I suppose we've gotten used to your mispronunciation. Oh, mispronunciation. Of That's what happens when you Mr. conservatism. So like I do. <laughs> um, but it's... In, so, like, what I find interesting about that example is, you know, you have, a, you have these American people who have all grown up. You know, there's, there's nobody in that society, except for babies, who did not experience the world before the zombie apocalypse. You know, it's only, I mean, I don't know if they're in season seven is what is it like seven years since the end of the world? That, that's not a very long time, you know, politically speaking, they're all aware of concepts. No, no, it's much, it's much less because uh, you see Judith, the Rick's daughter, and she can't be two yet. She's hardly walking. I bet she's not even, she's not even one. So I'd be, I know that you know watching the growth of of babies in TV shows is not a good indication of the timeline, but The Walking Dead has been very good at hiding how long they've been, it's been. Yeah. Um, and then, so just at my wild guess, they talk about years, so maybe three to four years. Uh, but you know, I mean, Judith was conceived in season one, so and that's, that's by that timeline, exactly. it, it can't be more than two. Yeah. So well, I mean, that that makes it even worse. Like these people are very much aware of how you know, at least in principle, governments should function. You know, so as you know, like you said, okay, so there's these these group of guys called the saviors who are obviously have you know decided to be self interested and uh, you know just kind of try and take over as much as they can, which I'm not saying wouldn't happen, but I don't think that you know Rick's decision with a group of other um, survivors to band together against them would be very hard. They would just be you know politically pragmatic. You know, wipe out the threat and then reestablish some form of, you know, some form of uh, democracy or some form of free trade, which they're already doing, which was good. But the other problem is, is that, like, I just can't see the zombies being a threat once you've established, like, a working administrative state. Um, yeah. So let me let me fill it in there. But because um, a lot of what you say, I agree with. It's a very interesting idea to compile this um, library of norms that wouldn't just be thrown out the window as soon as things uh, deteriorate. Um, it's also interesting that, to, well, not interesting, but it's important to note that The Walking Dead had to embrace that at some point that we would have to, you know, civilization would return uh, to some standard at some point in the show. Um, and that's because they, you know, they first of all set, they set up the, the zombie prototype, the, the, the dead, as a virus-inflicted um, corpse. So it was never going to be very fast. It was never going to be much of a threat except in, in, in large numbers. Um and as soon as you've found fuel, a vehicle, some firearms, um, you can pretty much, you know, you'd have to be quite an idiot to get yourself caught out and killed now. And so the show's not about group versus zombie. It's now about group versus group. And so they're using the uh, degradation of infrastructure and uh, severe scarcity of resources to try and flesh out some of the nuances of human interaction. Uh, and of civilizational and I think that that would work and fantastically in I mean I don't know how interesting this would be as a show but if you could like you know collect up you know like let's say aliens collected up 
200,000 human beings from different parts of the world, you know, so that they, you know, represent a, a mix of, of, of human, you know, human ethnicity. A microcosm. Yeah. And yeah. then put them through a machine that completely wiped their, like, normative education. So they can still, like, speak and use tools and stuff, but they have no idea how to run or what works best in the form of... So they basically have to operate on human instinct alone. And then put them in a then put them on a you know a planet and said and said go no you know then yeah absolutely because then immediately what would happen is you know human beings would revert to our most primitive instincts we would form small groups and just start probably fighting over resources depending on how scarce those resources were but you that's well, not the case in the that, that is a very interesting idea and I knew this this episode was going to be a bit of a runaway <laughs> episode because we we haven't answered yet how we think empires are going to should fall and, and I wanted to answer earlier how um, how difficult it was for Rick to make the decision to fight back but this idea for a TV show I don't think you would actually need a microcosm of ethnicities if all you're reducing the 200,000 can we call them players to is their basic human instinct because if that's what we're going back to then ethnicity doesn't really make a difference no, if, you, if someone's going to have to relearn how to something as basic as running um then uh, you know uh, your schooling education can be wiped is, is very superfluous at that stage so i don't think um you know you could have two hundred thousand people from the same eth- ethnic group it, uh, i think it oh, just still absolutely. Fun and they would just form the groups that they uh, but i mean that's what we experiment. have at the moment. But, you know, if, if someone's thinking of doing this, like, I don't know, maybe Elon Musk <laughs> to use his Mars SpaceX program to no, test... that is a horrible experiment. Do not do that. that. You're not getting past an ethics committee <laughs> with this experiment. I won't tell you who said it, but someone who I know has <laughs> um, got, you know, South Africans are quite fond of Elon Musk being a South African himself. He, um, <laughs> he also went to the same school I did, just by the way. He, um, someone I know said he's actually one of these underground villains he's just waiting for the right time to come out you'll see by the time he has that Mars program put together you're going to find he's going to put all the people who screwed him over on that spaceship he's going to send them all the I don't even know how far it is to Mars and that's quite poor I should know how many lights it takes to get there but by the time they get you there basically we will be rid of all of Elon Musk's enemies he's going to build a big death ray on the moon and just point it at like all the Earth's major cities (laughs) and demand money the sun killer he'll just be like you're already like one of the richest people on the planet why do you need our money and he's like damn it i made myself rich and coming up with this plan this was silly <laughs> but um to answer your question on empires like we have i mean I, I think we're past the point of calling them empires now but imperialism still exists you know so the that that yeah. spreading the, the so the the successful collection of norm of political norms and values that superimpose themselves on the planet exists and i think that this is why we're having and this is why it's interesting to look at this from the point of view of North Korea or, you know, the situation on the planet at the moment is that, you know, North Korea is this tiny little island that's kind of separated from the rest of the norms and values that the rest of the, that the, rest of the world is now kind of homogenizing. Um, so could you say they sort of like the Greyjoys in this in our worlds? Yeah, um, like they're just they're just kind of I, I they're they're kind of like leftovers from a bygone era almost. You know, I mean I don't know I don't know if comparing them to the Greyjoys because the Greyjoys like are at least players. Like this is the thing about North Korea. Like I mean I know that the media gets so much traction off playing off people's fears about North Korea, but North Korea is not 
an actual threat. I mean, even to America, the fact that they're lobbing missiles around is not threatening as such. You know, it's like a, a you know, it's like a, a little kid in the school ground wanting to keep the big kids away from him. So he's just like picking up the biggest rocks he can and throwing them around to show them that he's a bit of a threat. But like, I would imagine from a political, you know, realist's point of view, Pakistan probably represents much more of a threat to America's, you know, political ideological agenda. And they've had nukes for fucking how, I mean, when did Pakistan get nukes? Yeah, like decades ago. And, uh, you know, they're an Islamic state that has, you know, ties to a lot of terrorists. They're not an Islamic state. What do you mean they're not an Islamic state? I mean, you know, they're all... I'm sure that excludes ninety percent of the population is Muslim, but Islamic State implies that they're oh, no, a theological no, so, no, state. They're not a theological state. Yeah, no. But what I meant from like an American policymaker point of view, you know, if if I actually put all the information in front of them and tr- and you know and removed all the names and said, right, you know, so here's um, State A. They have nuclear weapons. They've had them for decades. They're not friends with the U.S. Um, they're also, you know, in the Middle East, and they've been known to sponsor terrorism sometimes and do some dodgy stuff. And they have, you know, they're, harbor, yeah, they're terrorists. harbor terrorists, and they have a growing economy. And here's State B. They've kind of, you know, almost killed off the entirety of their population with starvation. Every now and then they make a leap of technology that's way behind everybody else, but they kind of show it off every now and then, and also they're on the other side of the world. Uh, you know, which one do you think we should combat? Obviously, I mean, obviously I set up this lovely straw man to prove my argument, um, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, like, Pakistan, but the thing is, like, because Pakistan is part of the global community, even if sometimes they're a bit of a misanthrope in the global community, you know, they're, you know, but they still have that conversation. They're, they're at, you know, they're at the UN, they're, they're having discussions, they have diplomatic relationships, whereas North Korea doesn't have that they're you know they're the odd one out okay um, so i we still we still haven't figured out how we think um the the the, the negan empire is going to fall if it would fall at all um but let's let's go along with this let's say let's try to work out which one because I, I i'm in agreement i also think pakistan is far more of a threat uh, to u.s interests and to global um security than north korea is but it is a good um i think it's a good debate to have so let's put it into Game of Thrones season seven. Well, not season seven. We can just put it into Game of Thrones uh, at large, into the whole story narrative, and say if we had to compare them, I would like to just for fun, not because they resemble the same level of threat, but just for fun, say that North Korea is kind of like the um, the White Walkers. Kim Jong Un is our Night King, and uh, but then who, then who would Pakistan? represent are they the targaryens are they the lannisters perhaps um i you know i i'm just personally biased i'd say the u.s are the lannisters the the bullies the the rich bullies but um if we had to compare houses if we had to compare north korea and pakistan based on the houses of uh, of game of thrones who do you think they represent and more importantly how can we bring out the differences because I see, you know, North Korea is very is probably the strongest ideological state we have outside of China. But they are isolated. They don't have any political affiliations. They don't. It's very difficult to exert um, pressure on them, uh, over them. There's sort of like an unstoppable force um, for now. Uh, it, I do agree that you know the technology between not just 
the um, North Korea's enemy in the US, but also North Korea's ally in China combined easily have the technological and missile and military capabilities to thwart any threat that North Korea poses. But the thing that makes them so interesting is their rogueness, is their independence in the international system, because they don't buy in. Like, you know, the the White Walkers are not fighting the battle of, set of five armies or seven houses or whatever. They're a complete extraneous threat. Um, whereas Pakistan... Um, being a part of the UN system is an irrit is a thorn on the side of the US far more because they have more allies um, and they're in a very influential region. Plus, they have um, a, an enormous population with uh, with a nuclear arsenal. And what, from the from the sentiments of U, US leadership, it, they're becoming quite frustrated. I mean, it's very difficult to gauge foreign US foreign policy based on on Trump's tweets, but I know that. He, him and his military advisors are getting very frustrated with both funding the uh, Pakistan um, for prevention of terrorism, which they've been doing for also decades, but at the same time, um, Pakistan's using their ability and their proximity to with Afghanistan to harbor certain terrorists and to protect them, and to, and in some cases, in in conspiracy theory circles. They are encouraging um, certain terrorists uh, in in activities, albeit limited capacity but they they're turning a blind eye to a lot of what's going on in their borders we know that you know they've had attacks um, all around their country from lahore to quetta and uh, balochistan um we know that you know afghanistan and the taliban crossing the border have a lot to do with that so it's not just up to pakistan's government picking and choosing where and when to suffer terrorist attacks but the fact that they on a not using the you know, foreign aid and U.S. funding as best they can to fight terrorism. They're also they're also becoming a, sort of a, an influential force that that is far more threatening to to U, like I said U.S. interests and global security. They're kind of like uh, maybe the Dornish. They kind of let the let, they let people in the way that they sided with the Targaryen with with Daenerys. Yeah, I mean, because I, I think that there are two things going on. Firstly, there's the real. There's the real world, you know, like real world politics, you know, in international relations, what we call realism. So the actual powers that are that are playing around. Um, and I do agree with you, like Cersei and the Lannisters, if they represent the status quo, I suppose. I mean, if we imagine a world where America has lost a fair amount of power, but still holding on to the, you know, world superpower throne, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah, they represent they're, they're, they're representing America. And Cersei, you know, you could see at the end of season seven, and spoilers, um, Cersei made a decision at the end where she was like, I'm not worried about this kind of this threat coming from the north because it's such a far away threat. And also, you know, these white walkers have to get all the way down here. But whereas I have an enemy that's much closer. So she's making... You know, she uh, by that article that we shared on our Facebook, she's making a very rational, realist decision there. She's also re she also realizes that she has an enemy in the north, the king in the north, as Jon Snow, um, who is threatened by you know this north, uh, the, the the White Walkers, um, and that by them battling it out, uh, she, she gets both. She leaves. She doesn't lose anything, and both enemies get weakened. Except for the case that in this situation, the White Walkers might even get a little bit stronger because they could raise the dead. So, in this fantasy world, the the metaphor is not one hundred percent parallel. 
Um, but yeah, I would say, and then, you know, exactly, the, the threats of, I, you know, if you consider Pakistan and maybe other more roguish nations, you know, Pakistan, Iran, um, India to a certain extent, you know... Uh, India's or, a bit of a stretch, bro. Yeah, no, but I'm, you know, I'm saying, like, these these groups of states that don't really adhere to the party line of American liberal democracy on an international scale or agree well, with say America's... That they don't... They don't follow the US-centric or unipolar system that most people believe in. Exactly. And that's, you know, Dawn, I agree with you, Dawn, and also the Tyrells, um, to a certain extent, of maybe a bunch of smaller houses who we don't really give a shit about. Um, and Cersei Lannister, again, did, like, the smart thing. She, one of her allies, went against her, and she fucking invaded hard, and, you know, used that to gain a huge amount of cash that she then turned into a mercenary army. So now she's in a position where she has, you know, a, an army that can fight against her real enemy, which is um, Daenerys. But I think what's interesting, what's interesting in the comparison is that the whole issue that we face in the real world is that of nuclear weapons. Um, everybody freaks out because the, 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 the threat of North Korea is not really a threat. You know, they don't, apart from the fact that their artillery is so close to um, Seoul, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. But in the large grand scheme of international politics, it's not a huge issue. You know, um, the South Korean government and the South Korean state could easily defend against uh, like a, a conventional attack. The issue is nuclear weapons and which the U.S. has always been, you know, kind of the global watchdog against nuclear weapons, unless you're a state who has balls and is just like, fuck you, America, we'll do what we want, which is exactly what the North, you know, the the um, the king of the North, uh, sorry, the White Walker king um, did, you know, he managed to get his hand on the Game of Thrones version of a nuclear weapon, which is a dragon. So now you have two states that have um, nuclear weapons, and I wonder if that has an effect that maybe... Now, Danny and uh, the Night King are more reluctant to fight each other in case of like the mutually assured destruction of um, of what's going to happen. But it's interesting to me that in the real world now, we don't seem to think that the mutually assured destruction applies to North Korea. Like, why do we assume that Kim Jong Un is such a madman that he's willing to threaten the existence of his state, which obviously he's not because. He has made, you know, he's making decisions based on his own rationality. But he must know that if he launches a nuke in any direction, his state will immediately be invaded, if not also nuked in return. And also the chances of his nuke landing in any, you know, Japan or South Korea or America are highly unlikely given those states' ability to defend against those type of attacks. So, you know, like, what are we really worried about here? Or is it just media attention playing up this conflict for, you know, clickbait reasons. So the media has played up North Korea's nuclear detonations in the past quite successfully, and they uh, they like to take an interest in that and uh, create a few clickbait, art- clickbait articles out of it. It's um, It's been something to track since they've grown militarily and their successes have grown to the point where they are now, I think they've recently successfully cleared Japan. They got a, a, a nuclear missile launch that flew over Japan, which is still nowhere near the geographic distance that they require in order to reach or threaten Alaska, let alone California, physically. So 
the the threat to the United States is still minimal, but uh, it exists. Nevertheless, the U.S. still has a very strong anti-ballistic missile uh, defense system. It's point-to-point uh, -point lasers, it's um, ground-to-air turrets and missiles are very, well, they're sufficient and they're capable of bringing down intercontinental ballistic missiles. So in addition to having such a large nuclear arsenal, it's also got all the abilities to deflect any nuclear threats that uh, that could fly over its geographic airspace and uh, and therefore there's uh, the, the 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 physical threat from north korea is even more severely diminished nevertheless it's the irrationality of the leaders that's so intriguing because um given the united states ability to deflect nuclear threats kim jong un's determination resembles that of the night king uh, and we see this when in season seven of Game of Thrones, the Night King shows a willingness to take on the, whole, the entire armies of Westeros on his own, and it's only by chance and you know, Daenerys's heartthrob that brings her dragons to the battle that we see with Jon Snow's trying to capture that White Walker, where she loses it, and um, and the Night King gains uh, the. Game of Thrones version of a nuclear missile in the form of a dragon. But he didn't plan on having that dragon. He didn't expect it. It was a bonus for him that he got it. He was still going to march into the northern and eventually the southern kingdoms of Westeros without uh, such weapons and actually take on three of the dragons on their own. And so it's that inability um, to foresee the potential of the enemy to thwart their attacks that makes the comparison so so familiar. It's um, it's not as if Kim Jong-un, it's not like he's going to have a successful campaign, certainly not a nuclear campaign against the United States and the rest of the world, that makes this attack so interesting to watch. It's more his determination to take on an ideological system that is opposed to his own, and his willingness and seeming irrationality to support it by any military means at his disposal that makes it uh, even that much more uh, interesting. So sticking with analogies that work, I um, don't think that House Tyrell was a was a good fit with Pakistan because House Tyrell was too too devious in its alliances. They used um, Queen Marjorie very effectively to get her to marry the king, um, you know, to play on Joffrey's heart and to uh, eventually marry King Tommen. And in addition to that, they're also the agricultural powerhouse of Westeros. They produce a lot of food and therefore become an important ally for any rulers of Westeros and have made themselves available for bargaining in that in that sense. But we also need to consider the Greyjoys when you look at how Yara left with her brother Theon after their conflict with their uncle. Remember, the uncle came back and murdered their father. So Yara fled with Theon to take all the ships that they could possibly get to go and fetch Daenerys and take her on the ships, transport her and her, and her two armies uh, all the way to Westeros. Well, uh, Dragonstone, that is, the island. And this resembles Pakistan quite well. It looks like a house conflicted. Now, in addition to being a house of dissent, they also have the ability, um, both Pakistan and the Greyjoys, to influence global events You know, with their um, resources, with their geographic positioning. 
uh, and with their alliances, but they don't necessarily have a history of making strategic alliances to their benefit. They they have their own path of self-determination and they seem to be quite isolated. In fact, they don't um, particularly to buy, buy into anyone else's ideology or follow anyone else's course. You know, it took them, a, it took the graduates at least a long time to declare their allegiance to the Iron Throne and they still want to bargain and get something in return for that. So um, in these respects, you can see that the, the you know they, they make for a suitable analogy or comparison with, with Pakistan. And uh, even if Pakistan was more comparable with uh, Dawn, you know, being one of the last kingdoms to join Westeros and uh, upholding a history of consistent defiance of, of the Iron Throne and not really following anyone's line, not making strategic allegiances or alliances, and keeping themselves pretty separated. They, um, No matter which analogy you choose to use, it still leaves us with the question of what do you do as the ruler of Westeros? What should Queen Cersei do sitting on the Iron Throne? And she should absolutely not get involved with the fight with the White Walkers. The battle is just too far away. The threat is just too far away. It serves her best interest to to let the alliance between Jon Snow and Daenerys um, serve as a buffer between the White Walkers and herself. Let them take, let them weaken Jon Snow, perhaps even remove him from the throne. Let them take, hopefully, take care of another two dragons, and uh, and let Daenerys try and defend or or further her interests in Westeros with a weakened army. All the time, all the while, sitting back in the Iron waiting for your 20,000-man strong army to arrive from the Iron Bank. Bank from uh, Essos, which you bought with money from the Iron Bank. Well, that's the real interest and intrigue behind North Korea. It would not be as popular as it is if it didn't have that real alliance with China, if it didn't have that momentum and that clout um, and that backing by such an enormous partner because of the, the Chinese influence. If uh, if it truly was rogue, if it truly had no support, if China had turned its back on, the, on North Korea, then it would be a lost voice in the wilderness. And in that sense, China is the real white walker. It's got so much power behind it. It's got so much threat. And uh, without that alliance, you know, North Korea would just be one quiet little Frodo. Uh, no, I disagree. There is uh, such determination in the Chinese leadership to make the country fit um, a sustainable agenda that it will not betray its own self-interest. It is determined to keep the Communist Party together and to keep the people in line with its ideology, but it would not put the it would not put the future of the country at risk because of, of its own ideological incapacities. And therefore if there is a state designed will to suit the people or to serve the people or to make economic and political changes, it'll do so within those confines. It will not arbitrarily accept uh, or bow to external forces to make that change. Like it's it's a lot of fun to to look at Game of Thrones from a political science and especially an international relations perspective. I think going back to North Korea, 
the threat that North Korea does pose a threat to America, it absolutely does. But the threat that it poses to America is not nuclear weapons. Its threat is normative. Like you, you've, you've said before, the threat is a state that's not getting with the program. And one of the biggest threats to American norms is, you know, one of the ways that America tacitly enforces its imperialism around the world is with the fact that it has nuclear weapons and has such a strong army. So you either, and this, I mean, this is why, you know, Russia and America, or the USSR and the United States of America entered into, you know, a Cold War for so long was because you had two very powerful um the states and one of them would not get with America's program. So you had this long-standing problem in the world that that just had no way of resolving itself. If if North Korea gets its hands on nuclear weapons that are capable of sustaining a cold war relationship between itself and the rest of the world, that's that's the issue. That's what America doesn't want because it means you've got a state that's effectively saying there is another choice, there is another way to be. Um, you don't have to get you know follow the program, and I think that you know for somebody like me living in Australia, it's very easy for Australians who are very westernized and you know follow America and and or you know uh, Canadians or those in Europe to be like, yeah, I mean North Korea is a, that's a, that is a threat, but uh, you know go to Africa where the history of colonialism is very recent and they don't have a lot of trust for Western norms and values, and say to them. Hey, look! Here's a state that's actually telling the rest of the world to fuck off, um, and they would find that very interesting. And I'm sure that American policymakers are very aware of that, and they don't want that message getting out. That's the threat. But that—that's why I'm saying it. It. I don't think it matters that much. I mean, as we said at the beginning of this episode, politics and international relations is progressive. It, you know, you're finding, and and there are certain. Things that need to happen that are that are humanly universal, and I, you know, I, I know people don't like that idea, but the fact is, is that, you know, there is a economically efficient way to distribute resources. Uh, there is a you know bureaucratically efficient way to run a government. Um, you know, there is a best way to make use of human potential, and those can be expressed in in different ways. You know, maybe institutions tweaked differently to take into account culture. Um, and ethnicity and all of that, but at the end of the day, like providing people with freedom in order so that they can express, you know, pursue their own goals, um, leads to much more innovation. So whether whether China is is taking those institutions from the U.S. or whether China had that to begin with before colonialism, I mean, that's a whole other issue. But the thing is, is that as long as those norms are being expressed, that's what's important. You want you want those norms to be expressed, and if your neighbor shares the same norms as you, whether you they got those norms from each other or you developed them organically, you know, at the same time, you're still two neighbors who are now living a similar life who can agree on a bunch of things, which North Korea is not. It'll disagree with everything. It's true. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's very naive to speak in, you know, only a Sith deals in absolute. So you can't say it's... Um Either China is determining its own path because it determined it, or it's determining, it, or it's um, following a trend set by others in the West. I'm, I'm sure it's you know there's a relationship and there's a there's a dance between the two. The there are ideas that come out of the West that might be appealing, but it might morph, they might change them, or, or find their own way to deal with them, um, or it might just impose its own will, which I think most of the time it does. And that means that that results in what we're seeing. Um, it you know kind of fits um, reality at the moment because. 
China will play in the international system insofar as it serves its own interests. If it doesn't, it will happily buck and form its own microsystem, like it's oh, doing absolutely. with BRICS and forming its own bank and its own development bank and getting its own infrastructural partnerships set up. So it's doing both very well. Um, and that, it's for that reason I think it's a more interesting case in North Korea. Um, but just to uh, just to finish that off, if um, to, to come back to Pakistan, it doesn't really matter whether we think the Grey Jury or the Dornish House fit the model better. What's imp- what's interesting about those comparisons is uh, both what the the Iron Throne should do about them, and two their capabilities to influence the um, the great development of you know of, of relations between houses or in, in the relations between states. Given the conflict that occurs within the country, both politically, systemically, uh, ideologically, its capacity to wield enormous amounts of power in multiple forms is what creates the threat. Is is its instability that um, that breeds unpredictability? So that unpredictability is what makes uh, Pakistan such an interesting case. Um, and of course, you know, in its in a more hardened form, uh, it's what makes Iran so threatening too. Um, but we still haven't figured out how or why or when empires should fall. To answer that question, I think what's important is to say that there is one thing in, in realist international relations that you can always rely on. And that is the fact that world leaders and states will always act within their own interest. And this is where I begin to diverge from the Game of Thrones metaphor. Because the one pro- I love Game of Thrones because it's a, it's a great show to watch and it's entertaining – but the problem is, is that people are making decisions, and you can see that the writers wrote those decisions in because they're good for the narrative, but they don't make any rational sense from the point of view of that leader. So, for instance, why do we assume that North Korea and Kim Jong-un are any less rational than Stalin was? And Stalin you know, was, had nukes, and he never used them. But I mean, that guy was fucking crazy. But he knew what was in his best interest, and he knew what was rationally a good choice for his state. The same thing as if we look at Daenerys. I, I don't know why Daenerys was listening to um, uh, Turian, because he was making some dumb decisions. She had three dragons and the largest army on the planet. She should have marched directly to King's Landing. And the whole thing of oh, no, you know, we were really worried about the civilians in the city. Like, fuck off. Firstly, fly your dragons over the city a couple of times, dropping leaflets to tell everybody to get the fuck out of the city. That's one way to do it. The second way to do it, lay siege to the place for a couple of days and just wait for the internet and just keep dropping. They're the only power in the state, in the world that has air power. So that changes the game completely. Do you know, just... You know, you could lay siege to the whole place with your massive armies and your fleet, completely besiege the place, and then just fly over dropping propaganda leaflets. They've got printing presses in that world. And just be like, you know, that. but that's what I'm saying is that's the rational decision. So when should an empire fall? An empire should fall when it's no longer capable of making self-interested rational decisions. That's, that's, you know, that's the tagline of the show. When you play the Game of Thrones, you either win or you fucking die. So, you know, that's, that's, yeah. a, that's when an empire should fall. I agree that D- Daenerys wasn't the most rational leader when she was sitting on Dragonstone trying to make a decision about what she should do. However, I don't think Tyrion's advice was all too unfounded. Um, perhaps it was the wrong decision, but I could see where it was coming from. Her purpose is to rule. Her purpose is to rule 
the right way. That's the way they've developed her story over six seasons. If she's going to fly, she was prepared to use the dragons to instill fear in Slavers Bay, to threaten the slavers. She never once used them to threaten slaves, or the Dothraki, or um, uh, or the the um, the Unsullied. So, for her to fly them over King's Landing would only create the impression that she's coming to take the throne away and rule through fear. She's going to she'll threaten dragon power if people disobey or buck the system. Although she wouldn't mean it in that way, although she, you know, you would hope to only fly it over Cersei's head um, and have everyone else be your friend, it's not possible when you've got three massive dragons flying overhead and an army outside your walls. They did wisely contemplate using Dornish and Tyrell armies to form a siege and that way apply soft pressure or economic um, sanctions to get Cersei to change her mind. It was pretty. That was also a pretty dumb idea. I like the idea of using um, Westeros houses, but still, Cersei is the one who cares least about the poor and the population of King's Landing, and so you know the people who suffer with less food are not not exactly going to give her trouble sleeping. Um, but I do understand where Tyrion was coming from. Perhaps she needed to make the tough call and do it anyway. But you know the. The reason they've built her up to be the queen that she is is because she listens to the people who advise her as opposed to Cersei. Um, which is it's just a good story arc to go with. However, where I start to disagree with that is, and have problems with it is when she goes completely full retard and decides she's going to fight the, the, the White Walkers. There's no reason to do that. She, ha- she, has no, she suffers no threat um, from... The, the Night's Watch. She has no allegiance to the Night's Watch. She has no reason to involve herself with Jon Snow either. It's his problem for now. So if she had the Iron Throne and she could rule in the best way she can, she could deal with that, the, the threat of the White Walkers when they cross the Twin Peaks, uh, or the Twins, I think they call them, in River Run, um, it, when it becomes her problem. And uh, and that's not now. So her decision to to try and form an allegiance with King's Lang, I think, was an idiotic decision, completely unrealistic. Um, and it's purely based on the idea that she's in love with her brother, um, which is interesting. And I don't, uh, it's another reason for me to continue to hate Daenerys. I think she's very self entitled and she's making, after all six seasons worth of trying to make her the right type of leader, she's now making the wrong decision. Well, that's, but that's the thing is that because I think it's because they kind of wrote themselves into a little bit of a corner in the fact that they gave her so much power. You know, at the beginning of Season 7, if you power-ranked all the players, now she just she's just outstrips everyone way high. Um, and, like, I, I, still, I do not buy the argument of, like, just flying dragons over, um, over King's Landing is somehow being tyrannical. Like, no, I mean, you are a conqueror. You are coming to conquer... Like, you, you can call it what you want. You can say, like, I'm coming to reclaim the throne. At the end of the day, you're coming with an army to take something by force. You are conquering. You might have good reasons for that. That's fine. But the thing is, is that I completely agree with uh, General Douglas MacArthur, who, you know, he said that wars need to be as short as possible in order to mitigate the amount of damage done. And the thing about this world is that it, nobody has ever planned for air power. You know, it's it's almost as if they've entered a you know a medieval world has entered has been teleported to the, to the first world war. You know, which is when they started building bunkers and things that you that were difficult to bomb. You can fly one dragon into yeah. King's Landing. You don't even have to attack anything. You can fly that dragon directly to the palace and just start 
setting it on fire. Just set it on fire. Yeah, you're going to do quite a bit of damage to yeah, the but palace. The, but then, you, but then the dragon would melt the the, the iron throne, which Daenerys wishes to sit on. Yeah, but just that's, too many. That's even better. It's, that's, it's, it's, it's intriguing. That's it. That's even better. She wants to break the wheel, break the representation of tyrannical power. She wants the throne, Bruce. She's but not going to destroy it, it. Make it again. She they use dragons to make the throne the first time. <laughs> make it again. Like just do that shit again. Like I under, I understand that this would make for a really boring show because the first episode would be the whole season. It would be fly over, kill Cersei, done. I am now your queen. I have three dragons and the three big stars. If you want to say anything about it, too bad. Well, th- that critique, I agree with you. There was a lot of fluff in season seven. You can see they're running out of material. The lack of uh, content from the original author is hurting them a bit. Um, there was unnecessary drama and uh, character development. Nevertheless, it was entertaining. Um, and as far as season seven of The Walking Dead goes, that was a crapper season because the, if you if you thought seven episodes for, for Game of Thrones was long, try sixteen for Game for yeah. Walking Dead, which has no story. Oh, um, that was way too much drama, way too much character backstory and plotting. When all you need to say was, "There's some big bad evil dudes. Rick's going to suffer, but have to make a tough choice, form a political alliance with surrounding." Uh, camps and go and fight the baddies you could have done that in five episodes um yeah and that's nevertheless i will be watching season eight to see how how the military tactics that come out given the the various allegiances and capabilities of of others um but as far as the the fall of negan goes uh it will be interesting to watch i think um it's down to military capacity um alliances and using all the skills that they have which um you know, you'll see some infiltration tactics, some assassination, um, some explosives, and uh, yeah, some rare resource finding. But ultimately, no, not a big fan of uh, The Walking Dead at the moment. On to Vikings season, well, season four, part two. Vi- well, Vikings is awesome because it's based on you know actual historical events. No, it's so mostly legends. Actually, but yeah. uh, if you want to take a history, you go ahead. Yeah, no, but that, I mean. No, but there there are you know they're they're based on like epics that were based on battles that took place and like the Viking, I don't know if you've got up to the point where the Viking sack Paris like that's in Parisian records like so that the the way it's set up anyway that's another TV show that we could do another episode on but to end this episode off what I'd like to say is the media portrays what's going on in the world at the moment like it's a fucking tv show like there's some kind of narrative and people are making decisions based on their character when no it's not it's not like that you know you asked the question at the beginning of this episode when should empires fall and i'd like to change the question to like when should powers fall powers fall when they're no longer able to express their self-interest and win what they need north korea is busy displaying its power because it has very little power. It's throwing sticks around to tell everybody else to fuck off. If North Korea wanted to get into a war, which it doesn't, but if it did, it would be very quietly building up an arsenal like Hitler did just prior to the Second World War. Hitler very much wanted that war and he built an, ar- an army and a huge armada over two decades in order to do that. Um, and that's that's the difference between like Game of Thrones and the real world is that they're making narrative decisions, whereas North Korea and America are making long term strategic decisions about their power bases. And that's, I think, what's important to look at when you look at the media is that they're trying to tell you a story that will get you to come back, whereas, you know, that's not necessarily the case. I think you're just reading the wrong type of media. You're reading the story that, that, that they want to sell you. You should, you should change your sources a little bit. <laughs> Post for the win. 
<laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. Please go to the website, landsofleviathan.com, for more content such as other episodes as well as written articles. You can also listen to the podcast directly on the Acast app and iTunes or other podcast apps as well as YouTube. We would love your comments and feedback, so please send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N at gmail.com. Or you can contact us on Facebook as well as Twitter by the same name, the Lands of Leviathan Podcast. You can follow us on those networks as well. Plus, we have an RSS and email subscription service on the website. Remember to like, subscribe, and share, guys. Thanks so much.